welcome to Tech Tide, Tech ESSEC and ESSEC Meta Labs Ideas new podcast, which focuses on the next wave of applications of technology in a fast-moving world impacted by innovation. Today, we are treating the exciting topic of ChatGPT, which, as you may already know, has already managed to implement itself at a global scale, and particularly within school and uni- schools and universities. Is it here to stay? or will legislations be put in place restricting its use? How far will innovation in this sector of generative AI go? These are only some of the questions that we will be delving into today. All right, and our guest today is Maciej Vorkiewicz. He is an associate professor at ESSEC Business School where he does research on the adaptive properties of organizations. Now for our listeners, this refers to the process through which the structure within an organization, think about within companies, determines how they behave, learn, and respond to changes in the environment. And one of the biggest changes we've seen lately has been the rise of generative AI technology, such as ChatGPT. And so we're very fortunate to have an expert on this topic of adaptation and organizational change um, and with regards to how companies respond and adapt to these novel technologies. Maciej's work on these, on these topics has been published um, in leading peer-reviewed journals, such as the Strategic Management Journal, Organization Science, and Journal of Organization Design. But he isn't just a prolific scholar. Um, he's an expert on these topics, but he's also an educator. At ESSEC, he teaches strategy, organization theory, computer simulation, and machine learning across different graduate programs, ranging from the master's in management, MBA, doctoral school, and executive education programs. And from what I understand, Maciej, you'll be in Harvard Business School this summer to talk up, to impart your knowledge in computational models. Um, yes, this is true. We have a summer school in computational organization models, yes. Great. So I think we're in for a very nice discussion on generative AI and these adaptive responses from um, organizational stakeholders, but within the educational institution, teachers, students um, as well. So without further ado, Maciej, welcome um, to it's our nice podcast. To Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So, Carla, before we pick Maciej's brain on these topics, let's remind our listeners about what the context is and what do our listeners have to know to understand the core of our discussion moving forward. Yes, so for some context on ChatGPT, so ChatGPT is a language model created by OpenAI. It has revolutionized the way we interact with artificial intelligence, mostly because uh, it has become very, very um, affordable and a lot of people can delve into it uh, as there is a free version, but also a more advanced version that people can pay for it. And it has become a game changer in natural language processing. With this efficient ability to understand and generate human-like language, ChatGPT has transformed various fields of work in a short given amount of time. Those sectors broadly include business, education, healthcare and research, customer service, but also content creation. Um, It has also opened up new opportunities for businesses, researchers and developers to innovate and explore the potential of AI overall. So as this innovation technology has developed, organizations and professionals require adaptation to those changes, whether that is because of the automation of certain areas of work, but also because new skills are required to be able to use those new tools. And particularly, the most recurrent mediatized sector is education, as many implications are involved within that sector. So in anticipation of our discussion on AI organizations and their adaptive responses um, to change and innovation, as an expert on these topics, Maciej, how would you describe your relationship with AI? Oh, um, I think it's... uh... 
it's evolving very rapidly. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I think, you know, as early on as I think many of us, uh, you know, I got introduced to this idea through the popular culture, right? So whether you read books, you know, I'm an avid reader of science fiction literature. So whether you read Asimov uh, or maybe you read the Hyperion. Um, so there's lots of books, Necromancer, that kind of delved with the problem of AI. And actually some of those books, I think, in, in especially in science fiction, really pushed the boundary of you know, what will happen to humanity, to our civilization when we finally create or encounter sort of an entity that is way smarter than we are, right? And it was mm-hmm. always kind of like this fear and sort of fascination that we as as the, uh, as the uh, as culture or civilization had. Now, the way that I've been exploring this, so part of my research, what I do is computational models of reinforcement learning. So how complex systems evolve and kind of adapt. Of course, I use it to study organizations, which actually I claim are artificial intelligence, but a different sort. Um, uh, but that sort of naturally led me to also think and talk and read about artificial intelligence the way that we do it, not in the books, sort of science fiction, but in the real world, right? So that's kind of machine learning, uh, you know, from the 50s, the way that people have been sort of thinking about those models from the early cybernetics work. Uh, you know, as as the models that we sort of, you know, train on data or kind of, you know, they allow us to kind of partition the data more efficiently. Now, the part of rapidly evolving uh, is that, uh, as you have very nicely described for our listeners here in the introduction, um, something really has changed in November last year, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is where I think those two worlds collided for me, the, the science fiction world and the real world, right? We sort of thought about those AI models as simple, evolving. Yeah, they're kind of useful, allow us to predict. I mean, lots of people made a big deal about it, and I think rightfully so. Um, but suddenly now, in, since November, we encountered a model that sort of, you know, really surprised a lot of people, including actually its own creators, right? So people from OpenAI, like Sam Altman, they are surprised how far this model really went uh, with an architecture that, you know, people thought will be clever, but, you know, that's, it's going to stop at some point. Um, and I think even if we stopped the development of AI right now, right, where we are, so today with GPT-4, uh, as some people actually, you know, ask uh, us to, to do, right, to put a pause six months, you know, to stop the development, I think that the sort of transformation of our society and economy will already be profound. Uh, and it's difficult yet to tell, right, where this sort of uh, roller coaster will take us, what's the, you know, the end station or let's say the, the stops along the way. Um, but I think it's something that we can't ignore and we really need to pay attention to. You said that organizations are arti- are an artificial intelligence. Um, maybe you could share that a bit more, uh, share the intuition that a bit more with our listeners and help them try to understand, is there a parallel here that helps us make sense of what's happening? Mm. Yes, um, I think that's a, that's a very good question here. What artificial intelligence is, and you know, I think everybody's entitled to their own de- definition, uh, but you know, at least sort of what something that broadly people agree on, it's sort of a non-human intelligence, right? So something beyond human, like suprahuman intelligence. Uh, usually we associate it with something that is in silica, so a, model, you know, a computer model. Mm-hmm. Um, but a group of people, like a team, is also a form of, of super intelligence, right? This is a sort of artificial intelligence because it consists of nodes of individuals, people, um, that through the interactions among each other, uh, produce something that none of them individually could, right? So let's give an example of ESSEC, 
right? So our school trains students, brilliant mm -hmm. students, you know, graduates in multiple programs. Now, I know a very small part, how to do a very small part pretty well, right? So I know how to do research and how to teach strategy, but I cannot teach marketing or finance or economics in any sort of, you know, uh, 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 fashion. And I also don't know how do we exactly sort of, you know, screen students and how we help you to find jobs, so how the career services work. And yet, ESSEC as an entity uh, does all of these things, right? So we produce, you know, from year to year, hundreds of graduates, uh, you know, yeah. seamlessly, everybody goes through. So it is a form of uh, artificial intelligence. Now, uh, assume a following thought, thought experiment now. So imagine that you are GPT-4, Okay, let's assume that somewhere in this machine there is a sort of a consciousness, right, or some kind of a observer who looks outside into the world. Now, what would this observer think or assume through interaction it receives every day with some entity out there, right? So what it interfaces with is humanity, right, it is our civilization. Lots of people querying it, you know, thousands of queries per second, you know, arriving and I have to now juggle this and kind of answer and try to do this and write a poem here and, you know, kind of answer some kind of exam question there. Um, I think it would kind of assume, wow, whoever is there on the other side is incredibly clever, right? And smart and fast. Mm -hmm. I, I receive thousands of queries a second of different shapes and forms. Que some questions I can answer, some questions I struggle with, you know, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm in multiple languages uh, and I have to translate and so on. You know, humanity is probing this new creation, right? The way that the sort of uh, a supra-human entity would, right? We have academic journals trying to think about this this AI. We have uh, business people and consultants, you know, th throwing different questions, seeing what, what pops up. So on the other side of the table from GPT-4 is the human superintelligence, our civilization, our institutions, you know, the legal frameworks that try to regulate it. So that's kind of how I see this, right? That, and of course, within that civilization, we have this sort of smaller globules or modules, which are companies, you know, business schools, which are also those kind of, you know, artificial systems built of humans that process information, make decisions, you know, consume resources, and then kind of, you know, consume energy and then produce something in the form of products or services, you know, to, to other entities and to, to individuals. So kind of, you know, that's for me sort of a dance between sort of a human-like artificial intelligence and this new sort of technology-driven artificial intelligences. But there's lots of parallels. Actually, yeah. if I can just leave you one kind of nerdy comment for the last, well, you've invited professors, so you have to now deal, deal with me, um, is the creator of the first artificial intelligence program that actually worked uh, and that was played in 1956 at the conference in Dartmouth, uh, which is famous for actually coining the term artificial intelligence, uh, was Herbert Simon. And Herbert Simon was a very interesting individual. He got both Nobel Prize in economics uh, and also he got a Turing Award, which is like a Nobel for computer scientists, uh, one of the very few people who actually managed to achieve this feat. Um, and he, when he was working on this program, he was actually working on two projects at the same time. He was writing this program with uh, Alan Newell, uh, the logical theorist, this sort of AI program. So there was like 55, 54, 56. Um, but he was also working with James March on the book called Organizations, um, which was about this other side of artificial intelligence. So how organizations work, operate, make decisions, adapt and learn. Uh, and the work happened at the same time. And the last thing is that, uh, sort of a piece of trivia, the first AI program was yeah. run not on a computer. 
because computers were very expensive back then. It was work, uh, it was run on humans. So he actually invited graduate students and members of his family. He gave them instructions. So if, when you receive this instruction, then this is what you do. And if you receive the other one, so if then statements. And actually they ran the program on humans, right? So they used human organization to write the software that was for the computer, right? And now we use computers to try to run human-like sort of algorithms. So there's kind of this in interesting duality there and kind of, of course, you can't push it too far, right? Every analogy has its limits, but I think there is a lot of interesting things that, that we can, you know, at least appreciate um, in the development. Great. And what I see from there is that we, our listeners get a chance to understand how AI and organizations, you know, their relationship has been inextricably linked um, since since the found since the founding of this technology and how it it has developed. Um, if we now go to like the modern times, right? Um, I think this is an interesting seg into how companies and the stakeholders that they have are adapting to this growing influence of what we now call generative AI. Um, so let's bring this discussion now to how businesses are incorporating it into their strategies and the potential benefits that come with it. So Maciej, how do you characterize how generative AI is now impacting how companies adapt um, to this technology and sort of organize to it? Yeah. So I still think that we are very early, yeah. um, you know, um, so what I sort of like to bring to situations which are really transformative for businesses or in individuals is this kind of a little bit pop culture but, you know, sort of a model of, you know, the five stages of grief. I don't know if you kind of if you're familiar with this, but it's pretty sort of a pretty interesting take. So generally individuals, when they go through a difficult time. Um, you know, first is the denial, right? So now nothing is happening. I'm fine. No, don't, don't, don't bother me. Uh, then there's anger, right? Uh -huh. So it's like, how dare they? This is terrible. We need to stop it. We need to ban it. We need to, you know, outlaw it. It's, you know, they're kind of, they're stepping over the uh, copyrights of, of authors, not, not, not paying their due. They're using so much energy to train those models. There's just anger. And then the third one, the third step is bargaining, right? So uh, maybe kind of, you know, maybe I can give something here, but then I want something there. We kind of are pleading. And then kind of the last two steps are quite important because some can sort of go and get stuck at sort of depression, right? So they are like, oh my God, the sky is falling. I'm going to be, be without a job. You know, I, I was just going to travel the world until I run out of money. Um, or there is sort of adaptation and acceptance, right? So this is going to transform us. And I think that if you look, and, and we actually have done it a sec, we've done some surveys, we know, early before the, the, the generative AI came into scene with the traditional AI, right? So all those models that we yeah. already had before. And the companies were sort of all over the place, right? Some of them recognized, yeah, this is important and we are thinking about it. Some of them were like, yeah, we have a pilot project. And some of them were really thinking already quite far along the way, yeah, AI will actually become the integral part of how we do things. Just for clarification, yes. by traditional AI, do you mean like the symbolic pre-machine learning type of AI? No, the machine learning type of AI. Okay. Right? But the, not the sort of the generative based on transformers, right? Got so, it. And I think, you know, because we had a lot of models along the way, right? Anything from logistic regression through sort of support vector machines, random forests, you know, there's a lot of models. And, you know, in machine learning, there is this sort of theorem, no free lunch, right? So huh. we use them all de de depending on which application we sort of want. Uh, you know, sometimes you want speed, sometimes you want it to be explainable. And sometimes we just want it to be sort of really accurate, right? And depending on what is the type of data, uh, what we want to achieve, uh, what the parameters are, you know, we want to pick 
different models and tune them differently. Um, and, you know, and there's been kind of like a, you know, we knew that, you know, you, you start with the simple sort of linear models and then you go towards those deep neural networks and you get more and more sort of oomph, you know, from, from more data. The generative AI changed something. And this is where kind of part of my also research comes into play. So the way that the complex systems behave is that very often when you push the complexity further and further, you increase the size of the model. You start getting emergent properties. So the, suddenly the model acquires new features or new capabilities uh, because now sort of it can do more magic, right? It can, let's say, dedicate part of the sort of network or part of the model to specialized uh, tasks. Um, so it's not just sort of simple linear increase in size of the model that produces linear increase in the output or the capabilities. Sometimes you have those thresholds. And I think this is what's, what, we are, what we are observing with the GPT 3.5 and now 4 um, is that the quantity actually really translated into much more, right? And that's also something that the OpenAI was quite surprised. Uh, we don't know exactly how many uh, variables the GPT-4 has. Around trillion, this is what I've heard, around one trillion is what people throw around. The previous one had, had 175 billion parameters. Now, for our human minds, it's difficult to even comprehend what is a model with a trillion parameters, right? Like, what is this? Um, and uh, when you sort of think about our human brains, right? So Homo sapiens, we are so proud of being clever and smart. And we can use tools and think and strategize and plan and go to business school, um, you know, and let's say birds and mice can't, right? But in terms of technology, their brains are built on the same blueprint than ours, mm -hmm. right? It's just ours are bigger and they have specialized sort of prefrontal co uh, cortex, you know, we have special kind of zones which maybe are more developed and they can process more information. So sometimes quantity goes into quality. So with the generative AI, and this is, I think, going back to your question, you know, what's going to happen to the companies? Uh, now, this is sort of my claim is that what is, what is happening right now is similar to the first industrial re re revolution. So the first industrial revolution replaced simple human mechanical tasks. You know, we, we could call it blue collar work, right? So like, uh, cottage industry, you know, when you sort of do fabrics or maybe toil the fields, replace it with with steam machines and and, and machines, um, but it, it has produced huge transformation of economy, right? The bourgeois class, uh, the sort of you know the migration of people from the from the villages to cities, a pressure in those cities in terms of you know the social revolts. I mean, communism. All of this was kind of a product, you know, coming back from the first industrial revolution. The second industrial revolution, electricity was kind of cute, right? Oh, now we have lights, you know, it's warmer, but it it really didn't really lead to, you know, maybe the machine got a little bit more efficient, you know, instead of steam and heat and everything and, and noise, now we have electric, which is sort of better. And the third one, computers, internet was also cool. Now we can buy online and, you know, we have lots of entertainment. We don't have to go to cinema. We can just watch movies on at home. But this one, again, is sort of going after some of the things humans do. Right, so we humans ran to the cities away from the first revolution to hide there yeah. in our, you know, knowledge economy. You know, kind of living in a somewhat uh, uh, self-assurance that now we're fine. Right, it's the life is good. We can sort of work for, you know, here insert your favorite company. Uh, you know, travel the world, hang out with my friends, um, and now it's like, uh oh, right? looks like at least part of stuff that I do on a daily basis uh, can be done by a machine. And the machine doesn't complain, doesn't get sick, you know, uh, it's fine with, you know, whatever working hours that you throw at it. 
Uh, where it's going to go, I think, is a good question that we are trying to figure out, you know, the answer to. But um, it's going to unfold over time. Yes. Yeah, so talking about like coming back to the baby steps and the fact that we're basically in the very early stage of this technology, would you say that trying to draw more parallelisms here, you've already told a bit about the industrial revolution, but are there any comparable technologies or maybe events and experiences that have mm. perhaps had a similar impact over the course of history? Or is this completely a new situation like we've never seen before? Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to sort of try to uh, flex my sort of history muscle here. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, probably the answer is that yes, you know, we there were things in the history, depending on how close analogy you want to draw, right? But if you want to do like kind of a fuzzy one, I think that the closer that I could uh, draw, and this is sort of not mine, it's sort of one that I kind of uh, uh, heard and definitely resonated with me, is actually the glasses, right? So in the 13th century Italy, so kind of, you know, Renaissance Italy, something happened. So people learned how to produce glass and polish it to quite a high degree of precision, right? Uh, I mean, there were, this technology was also popping up in China, some other places, but, you know, in, at least sort of the agreement is that in Italy, so around Pisa and, 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 and Venice, you know, uh, some crafts people, you know, managed to polish those, uh, those glass pieces. And initially, of course, people thought, oh, great, this technology, right, allows us to read finer print, which was great because the printing press was just around the corner, you know, and also you can save more paper because you can write smaller. So many, you know, as you can see on the paintings, you know, like some kind of religious people and kind of scholars were using glasses to read. What we didn't realize is that the same technology also will be used to create microscopes and telescopes um, because and this these technologies allowed us to see more of the world, right? And AI will allow us to see more of the world. It's a technology of information production. If we can produce more information, more knowledge using this technology. Um, we can unleash it on co very complex problems, on huge data sets. Uh, you know, we can really analyze, you know, billions of parameters and extract some relationships that would escape our human, you know, very simplistic view of the world. And, you know, I don't have to sort of convince you that both the microscope and the telescope has really transformed not only economy, but also science, philosophy, religion, right? Suddenly we notice that, you know, the universe works in a certain way. So physics, you know, moved forward. We sort of realized, you know, all the sort of laws of, of you know, sort of the cosmic laws in our place in the universe, and we keep searching. The microscope opened us to the world of the microlifes, and, you know, suddenly we realize where the diseases come from. So that today, when there's a global pandemic, you know, in a couple of weeks, we already have the DNA, and then we unleash our technology and this would not be possible without simple glasses, right? So, and now we are at the moment where we have invented the glasses. We kind of see, we can see more with them and we are trying different ways in which, you know, we can use them in more productive ways. But I think we are still, you know, long before it really will transform, right? And we can kind of, you know, uh, it's probably toward, towards the end, we can sort of try to um, hypothesize, you know, where this can take us. Um, you know, in terms of, again, culture, uh, you know, think think about so social networks, right? Now the cost of production of fake news went to zero, right? You can generate fake videos uh, with generative AI. Uh, you can generate, you know, fake uh, 
media plans. You can ask GPT, you know, can you write me a marketing plan for my, you know, new kind of, you know, some kind of terrorist organization or something. And of course, it's going to resist at first, but there are ways to jailbreak it and kind of allow you to do. You can say, okay, no, it's not a terrorist organization. It's a grandmother's association, right? And then like, I'm going to replace the word later on. Um, so this will completely change the way that we ev evaluate evidence, what evidence we accept as as true. Uh, you know, where do we gonna go now, right? Probably some of the established institutions like, you know, newspapers, magazines that let's say have a brand and can be sued uh, will gain more, right? Because then suddenly they will be like, okay, I cannot trust just some kind of Joe Schmo on the internet because they have a photo of something. Right. I can have a, 20 photos for, you know, five cents. And just kind of go to stable diffusion. You know, I type in my prompt there. I want this and this and that. And I can do synthetic voice from any YouTube video. We kind of send it to uh, to another service. So that's already showing us, like, like even in a small space, right, how this can completely transform the way that we interact. You know, social media can completely, you know, we'll have to adapt to this as well. So I think one key takeaway from what you just said is that a lot of things are happening. They're happening real fast. And it's getting much more complicated to learn how to adapt um, in an optimal mm. way. And sort of in my experience working uh, for a couple of years as a data scientist in big tech and startups and even in a bank here in France is that um, when you have a lot of these innovations happening right across um, with something like as um, fast changing as AI, um, whether it's in better data collection, the explosion of big data, and now we see these the rise of large language models, um, these massive pre-trade machine learning models in general um, that has led to um, GPT-4, which powers ChatGPT, um, and this sort of um, trend towards open source um, type of innovation, there are so many things happening. Um, what advice do you have, I guess, for our managerial audience um, on sort of what to pay attention to amidst mm. all this, this, this noise and this fast change happening around us? Yeah, I mean, so I think that, uh, let me see. So I think the attention is maybe not a problem. I think it's hard to avoid the, uh -huh. <laughs> the, the topic uh, nowadays. I think it's pretty loud and clear. Um, I think that what may be sort of the two things that uh, that can um, uh, be a problem here is one is this sort of attitude that we discussed, right? So a sort of stopping and diagnosing myself, am I sort of in the denial anger sort of stage, right? Or am I trying to assume maybe more productive attitude towards this technology? Because my claim, and at least this is what I sort of tell my students, um, is you can't avoid it. It's coming your way. It's like internet, right? So imagine that you would say, like, I'm going to live without the internet, and you know, I'm going to live without, you know, uh, those those technologies, and I'm, I'm going to be a successful business person, right? Maybe. I mean, it's it's always, you know, there's nothing impossible. Okay, well, not, not okay. So um, I don't want to kind of provide uh, sort of a logical uh, uh, fallacy here, but there are very few things which you know are absolutely impossible. These are usually overlapping distributions, right? So if you decide to avoid this technology, can you still be successful? Yeah, of course you can, but you know, will it be harder? It will be harder, right? So this technology can be a huge sort of force multiplier. So you want to, you know, you want to definitely embrace it sooner rather than later. The second thing, actually, I think it's time. Uh, 
Um, and, I, and actually written about it on, on Asset Knowledge. There is an article that just came out today. Um, you know, sort of I was reflecting on how much time I have wasted. Now, don't tell it to the dean of the faculty. Um, how much time I have wasted on playing with this model since it was released, right? Uh, I mean, doing research, okay? That's the official term that I use. Um, but you try, you throw different things at it. You see how it behaves. You know, you then try different workflows that you had in the past. You see if it fits, if it can be adapted. You know, can I, you know, speak to maybe, I don't know, Microsoft Word and then copy paste here and then kind of do some kind of copy editing. This all requires time. Now, I'm in a sort of good position that, you know, I'm sort of partially paid to kind of, you know, do research, which sometimes involves wasting time or spending it on, on, on things like this. But what about people who are working? They have deadlines, projects, they have to deliver, right? To what extent they have time to experiment with this technology? And what we see with those, you know, as, the, as those models become more and more complex, right? For example, one big uh, uh, skill to develop is how do I work with this technology, right? What prompts do I use? Uh, how do I sequence my questions? You know, do I write a one beautiful baroque prompt that you know has every potential thing that i can think of or do i write a well, rough draft of a prompt and then i kind of you know pr provide subsequent prompts in order to get what i want kind of you know i sort of cascade and you know try and kind of and and and, and try to bring it on track uh, all of this you know it requires some certain feeling right so depending on what i do and also as those models evolve very few people actually notice the difference between GPT 3.5 and 4.0, right? So everybody still talks about ChatGPT. Uh, and many people say like, yeah, I tried it right last year and I came away un unimpressed. But GPT-4 is a completely different model from the point of view of, of what it can do, right? It's really, it's like a huge step up. Um, so you may come back with the things that the GPT-3 couldn't do. So actually what we have done uh, with some of my colleagues um, from the econ department, we took the microeconomics exam that was in the, I think, radical, uh, uh, issued last year, and we took some questions, and GPT 3.5 could do the simpler ones, but then the more complex with some derivatives, it kind of fell apart and gave, every time gave different different results, which immediately should alert you that there is something wrong. Mm -hmm. um, but then we threw it into the GPT-4 and it gave beautiful, it actually get, gave such an answer that it, it can be a solution key, even better than a solution key, right? And it went step by step and you can say, okay, now do it in verse, you know, as a sonnet, you know, and it will do it as a sonnet. I mean, so this is really unbelievable, but these things you learn, right? How you use it. Um, so, and I think for for companies and organizations and people, you need to make time somehow, right? So I, I wrote that companies should allow and give give employees opportunity and make it sort of part of the training to play with those models, right? How do how do I integrate it? How do people share the best practices? Uh, it's kind of a you know it's a part of the exploration of, of of trying new things, failing new things, and exploration is always unnatural for organizations because organizations usually like certainty they like immediacy so they like to exploit what they already know they are much worse with kind of you know sacrificing some immediate benefit for the long-term benefit right so i'm gonna adapt i'm gonna step back and of you know fool around um and maybe learn something in, in the in the process uh this this is more difficult for 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 companies and yet they need to do that right so for Organizations like a SEC, I mean, what, what this means that, you know, we need to work also with our alumni and executive ed education partners 
uh, to you know bring bring back and kind of have updates, just like the again going back to this analogy between the AI, the in silica AI, and the human our you know a kind of human AI. Um, the machine gets updates all the time. Do humans get updates all the time? No, it's a very slow evolution as the new graduates with new skills are released to the population and they slowly percolate through the hierarchies of organizations. And maybe 30 years down the road, the CEO says like, ha that's what we should do because I learned it 30 years ago at school, right? It's like, no, it's too slow, right? You want those ideas to percolate faster. Um, and, you know, and that's where I think the ed educational institutions also need to play their role. Yes, so having used ChatGPT myself as a student, I think a lot of listeners here will agree. A lot of listeners have experimented with that technology, whether for exercise questions or also maybe exam papers. What I can say is that sometimes it does provide quite useful answers in a way that it explains it better than a textbook would. Mm -hmm. It can, it really has the ability to simplify terms to a level that makes it easier for students to understand. And um, elaborating on what you said, I think this really places it as a tool and an emerging tool, um, maybe on the same level as Excel was a few years ago. So it really revolutionized a bit the industry. So on in that sense, what would really be the role of learning in this adaptation process? What really is there to take from this technology? What can we learn from it? And how can we apply um, how you said the time that we dedicate to that learning into this adaptation and then maybe moving forwards with that technology. Yeah, I mean, so um, maybe I can sort of provide the answer on both the individual and organizational level. I mean, organizational level, how to learn how the tool works is part of the way, right? So now I know how to prompt it. Now I know what to do. The second one is how do I integrate this into my workflow, right? So which uh, actions do I replace with this new technology? What can I simplify? Then what do I, what do, I do with the time that now I have left? Um, how do I integrate it in my collaboration with other colleagues, right? We, can we maybe collaborate? Because one is, one thing is me versus the machine. The second one is us and the machine, right? So what can we do here? So there's a lot of learning and adaptation as we change the routines in the organization, sort of the way that we do things. Um, the individual part is, you know, and this is, I think, where also now a lot of thinking that is what we do, the educators, is what do we teach you, right? And, and the fresh graduates. Like, well, what will the labor market need in five years' time? Uh, and it's really hard to, 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 to tell, right? I mean, the, this jump has been such, such a dramatic one that, I mean, think about, let's say, consulting companies, right? Um, if you previously, when you hired sort of junior people for junior positions, you know, their biggest value added was, okay, some fresh skills, but still very fresh, right? They need to learn how to do things. They need to learn the internal protocols of the company. You know, they work with, you know, with 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 another, let's say, more, more senior manager. Um, but now the senior manager or partner can just use GPT to get this done, right? So I want information on this, this, and that. Please summarize it for me, present it, and turn it into a few slides. Right? And suddenly the work of five interns, you know, gets done in a in, in, in couple seconds, right? So do we need so many interns, may this partner ask? And probably the answer will be no, unless we can find something else for them to do. Because this stuff now got really stupidly easy. Um, so that's also the adaptation on the part of the organizations, right? So whom do we hire? What positions do we hire? Do we still maintain the teams of the same size? You know, do we become top heavy as the bottom gets replaced 
with the GPT te technologies, right? Because the, the sort of the simpler, the lower level, let's say the cognitive tasks, which are more repetitive, require less specific knowledge. This is perfect for GPT, right? You just, you know, you can actually even think about, you know, how many simple consulting reports you can replace with GPT, right? Write me a report, 10 pages on, you know, the new eco-friendly technologies that we can use in, I know, food distribution. Right. Okay. Ten points. You want twenty to write twenty. You want. You want this in poetry. Just okay. Here is the poetry. Right. So that's another thing that we need to learn. Right. What do we What do we bring to the table as humans? Right. Because we know what GPT is bringing to the table, and it's bringing more and more every day. Uh, so what do we bring? Right. So that's uh, I think an important question that uh, we need to answer very very quickly and. It's being answered already, to some extent. Exactly. When I was observing how writers in this think tank um, used ChatGPT 3.5 at that time um, for their work, um, one interesting thing that actually agrees with just what everything uh, with everything that you said, uh, one insight that came out was that learning was really crucial to maximizing returns to this technology and to realizing sort of the complementarities between um, sort of knowledge workers, writers, and um, and AI. So it's, they always engage in sort of like this search process of understanding, mm -hmm. oh, what are the boundaries, right? What are the limits of this technology vis-a-vis -vis my own? What, it, what can it do well? What can it not? And what can I do well? And what can it not? And this sort of informs, right, this idea of what work do they have to delegate to chat GPT, to these gener to generative AI technologies at large? And what should we specialize in, right? Because um, now the residual time that we have for learning we have to always think about what type of skills, what type of learning should we invest in um, as this technology continues to evolve? And that's a question that we always have to have to come uh, come to terms with. So I guess I, this is a great um, segue into now the educational sector. So we hope you enjoyed this first episode of Tech Tide, TechSec and MetaLab's Ideas new podcast on ChatGPT within the sector of education. New episodes are expected to come in the future, so to keep in touch with TechSec and ESSEC MetaLab's latest updates and news, don't hesitate to follow us on our social media platforms. Thank you. Thank you very much, Maciej. Thank you, Maciej. Okay, Carla, Sam, thank you very much for doing this. It's been fun.